Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Dear Triune God, we come to worship you in your majesty. You are the all-sufficient one, the all-knowing one, the all-powerful one, creator of heaven and earth. Without beginning and end, all things find their origin in you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, each fully God, yet with only one God, the Trinity. We come to worship you. Reveal yourself to us through your word. Let us taste and see that God is good. We come this morning to humbly ask for you to help us to put all things aside that keep us from pursuing you. Whatever weight, whatever sin, whatever doubt, whatever burden we may be carrying, let us press towards the goal. Let's forget what's behind. Let us pursue holiness and rest in your grace when we do fall. When we do fail, hear our confession, grant us repentance, strengthen our faith and renew the joy of our salvation. For there may be many that need that this morning. Stir our hearts alive with a passion for your word and for your glory. Give us the heart of Paul when he writes and calls us to embrace the cross of Christ. By preaching and teaching and understanding that it's Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to the Jews and he's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are both called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we submit to that this morning. Strengthen our resolve to be bold and courageous. That we may share our faith. For we know that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, to those of us that you've called, that you've drawn to yourself, that you've enlivened, it's the power of God. So let us embrace the foolishness of the cross. And may we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to enliven the hearts of those who may hear us proclaim the gospel. For it's the foolishness of God is much wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. To the Almighty God be dominion forever and ever. And in the name of Christ we pray these things. And God's people said, Amen. Today we're going to look at the crucifixion of Christ. And I want you to think of these words. Why should you gain from his torture and his pain and his suffering? Like Jesus, we should be silent. Title of today's message is Exposed for All to See. Let me ask you, have you ever found yourself in a humiliating situation? You know, a stumble, a fall, the dream in which you actually went to class and found out you had no pants on was actually true in reality. Why is it that we all have that dream? I think that there's some probably, I'm sure there's some doctrinal dissertations on that. Have you ever had that? Someone's pouring more salt into the wounds. I remember one time, a young girl, we were at a party. It's outside. Everyone's outside. There's 
cake and there's, you know, punch and all that. And one young lady was carrying her punch and was walking on the grass and not familiar with the terrain, wound up kind of stumbling into a hole that she didn't see and kind of stumbles and drops her thing and almost goes to the ground. How humiliating. You ever done that? Those types of things always happen with everyone around, you know. We kind of enjoy those. I was just this week on Facebook, there's one of those things where, where it's, a, it's a collection of videos of people just spills out, you know, just in stores and things like that. And we think this is funny. And, you know, we, we kind of live in a society where trash talk and everything else where we love humiliate. We may not say that, but we love to see other people be humiliated, whether we would address it. Maybe I'm using harsher words than it is, but in this case it was. Poor girl took a tumble. There's always a few, are you all right? You know, maybe a few, hey, can I help you? There may even be a few, oh, no. But in this case, when this young lady took her tumble in front of everyone, an older lady started to cackle and laugh and point out to everyone what had happened. Not only a stumble, but a humiliation that then said, well, wait, let's everyone enjoy what happened to this young lady. Not a fun thing. I don't know if you've ever happened, have ever experienced anything, but it's not a fun thing to add insult to injury. We're in the last few hours of Jesus' ministry here on earth. Mark is almost finished with his gospel. His aim, as we saw several weeks ago, 63 messages ago, this is the 64th message as we're in Mark. His aim has been to give evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has demonstrated his divinity by exercising his authority over the natural and supernatural worlds through miracles and healings. He has proven his authority over sickness, the religious leaders, the temple, and even interpretation of scripture. He has declared that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited promise of God. He's the Savior of Israel. Yet, in spite of all of this, Jesus has been rejected and he has been falsely accused and now condemned to die the death of a criminal. This, as we have seen, is the will of God. Scripture tells us that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace with God. And it's with his wounds that you and I are healed and can pray for healing. God showing his love for us that while we were yet sinners, I'm speechless. There is no reason that he would do this for me, but yet in his love, to demonstrate his love, he died for us when I was a sinner. As we continue with this, we'll see the humiliation of Jesus will continue as he not only has been mocked, falsely accused, had a miscarriage of justice, beaten, but now we're going to see today he is now crucified. Father, we come before you when you ask for you to give us wisdom and the mind of Christ as we come together and humble ourselves to receive your word. We need this word Make this familiar story come alive anew for us. Let us see it with fresh spiritual eyes. Tenderize our heart if you must. 
Father, pour out all that you have for us. We thank you for this divine appointment. Let us make the most of it as we respond to the Holy Spirit's work. Let us not quench the Spirit, but Father, I pray that anything that would disrupt the service, that you would minimize that. And Father, that you may reveal yourself, that we may glorify you in the death of your Son. We praise in Christ's name. The first thing we're going to see is now it's time for the crucifixion. Everything's been leading up to that. We are in Mark chapter 15. We are in verse 21. Join with us. And they compelled a passerby, speaking of the Roman soldiers, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Mark tells us that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry the cross of Jesus. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. In Latin, the word for skull is Calvary. Hence, many times we will sing of Mount Calvary. Men condemned to die by crucifixion were usually required to carry the heavy cross beam. Most of us, when we see the movies and we think of it, we think of Jesus carrying a whole cross. But that's not historically accurate. They would just carry the piece that his hands would have been tied to. The post would already have been on the hill, so he would just carry just that cross beam. It was usually anywhere from 30 to 40 pounds to carry to the place of execution. Now, just as a reminder, up to this point, we see that Jesus has been scourged. He has been whipped. He has been beaten with hands and with sticks. He's bloody with open wounds. The Roman soldiers now place a hardened, rough piece of wood onto his lacerated skin and muscles of his back. Mark records that Jesus is weakened from his ordeal with not even enough strength to carry that or to drag that up to the hill of his execution. He's too weak to carry the crossbeam after his severe beatings. The Romans then compel Simon, probably a Jewish man originally from North Africa, to carry it the rest of the way up the hill. Now, I think that's interesting because Mark includes the names of his son, Alexander and Rufus. I believe Mark is the only one who does that. Most likely because they were known to the Roman church that the book of Mark is originally written to. In the closing to the book of Romans, Paul writes this. He says, greet Rufus. Chosen the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Mark probably records Rufus and Alexander here. He makes mention of them, even though they play no part in the story. Probably records their name as a device to show more evidence. If you don't believe me, ask Rufus. He's there. His mom is there. Ask them. As well as a connection to the Church of Rome. You know these people. It's kind of like, hey, ask Rufus if you don't believe me. He was there. He understands what was going on. As if the illegal trial by the religious leaders, the mockery of the justice by Pilate, and the torture of the Roman battalion soldiers were not enough, Mark records now how they add more insult to injury. As Jesus is placed on that cross... And then taunted by many. We're going to see four sets of people that mock and taunt Jesus as he's on the cross. The first we'll see is the Roman guards as Mark continues in the story. Verse 23. 
He says that the Roman guards offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for the side which he would make. Again, this is a, a prophecy of scripture in the Psalms. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. With him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. Now it was the Jewish custom to offer wine to someone who was dying in order to help with pain. As Proverbs tells us, give strong drink to the one who's perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. So there you go, those looking for proof text for drinking wine, there you go. If you're in distress or dying, there you go. I say that jokingly, obviously. However, the Romans offered him wine to quench his thirst, but they spiked it to make it bitter and undrinkable. Again, mocking him. That's prophesied in Psalms. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Like King David, again, who kind of is a precursor to Jesus. He's that type to the antitype. Jesus receives no sympathy from those Roman soldiers. David lamented when he writes, You know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart. David writes, So that I am in despair. He goes on to say, I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Jesus himself could say the same as he looked down from that cross. Yet I also believe, and this is my personal opinion, that I believe Jesus refused a drink, knowing that there could have been a narcotic to deaden the pain, because he was willing and desiring to suffer with his senses fully intact. There would be no respite for him. The inscription above the cross, King of the Jews, was not one of respect, but one of ridicule. It was Pilate's way of antagonizing the Jewish religious and political leaders. It's his one way to say, okay, you got me to do this, but uh, I'm going to get it to you one last time. They also identified Jesus with robbers and insurrectionists. That they were deserving of their crimes as Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Fulfilling what the prophet said in Isaiah when he writes, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is mocked by these Roman guards. Each and every event and a thing they do is meant to ridicule him, to mock him, to taunt him. The second set of people that mock him is we see the pilgrims. They're coming in for the Passover, walking to and fro. Look at verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. These people didn't know Jesus for the most part. They were most likely just traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. The cross actually was in full view of those passing back and forth through the road. Just like a giant billboard, everyone would see it. And surely they would ask, who is this man? Who are these men? Why are they being this? Why does he say king of the Jews on there? And people, the word finally spread around. Remember, that was the false accusation. Where they said, Jesus said that he would destroy the temple and build it up. 
They probably hadn't heard much about Jesus other than what he was wrongly accused of. And instead of getting more information, they just joined in with the crowd. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 22, where the psalmist says, But I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me, he writes, mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. And I'm sure Mark, as he was reading this, this psalm was in his mind. Again, as in Mark 15, you see much of Psalms 22 written in. So the pilgrims, people who do not even know Jesus, just join in on the fun and the ridicule. Thirdly, it's the religious leaders again. You think that they had their fill, but no. In verse 31 and 32, we see that they continue. Where he says, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And remind you that the very leaders who are doing this are the ones who should have embraced Jesus instead of mocking him. Instead, they glowed over his death. The religious leaders should have championed Jesus. They should have protected him. They should have put his arms up and said, here is our Messiah. Here is our Savior. Here is the the promise, the blessing of Abraham that we read in Galatians in our scripture reading. But yet instead, they derailed him and mocked him. And if that was not enough, the Roman soldiers, that's their job. They're hardened men. This is entertainment for them. The passerbyers, who can blame them? We see people like that. We see news and we join in with the crowd never getting the full story. The, re- the religious leaders, yeah, I could expect that from them. But then not if that was not enough, we see in the last part of verse 32, we see the thieves. As it says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Who are these men that they would revile Jesus? Should they not say, oh, you were the king? We should have been there to save you. They were insurrectionists. They were rebellious. They were were people who were seeking to overthrow Rome. But they could not prevent themselves from throwing their own two cents in. Not even seeing the depth of their own situation. Whether they knew anything concerning Jesus is not known. Probably not. But in their distress, they chose to join in on the crowd. Now Mark's account of the crucifixion is very brief and to the point. He's not going to talk about the thief that repents later. He's not going to talk about some of the other things going on. He doesn't really give us many of the sayings of Jesus. But Mark wants us to know that God's plan continues. Each actor continues to play their parts. And as each of these four sets of people continually mock Jesus and taunt Jesus, I was haunted as they were singing this morning, ashamed I hear my own mocking voice. You and I were not physically there. But our voices joined with all who were there. He died for us. We talked about this morning, would we have died for Christ? I don't know that answer, to be honest. I won't even make that assumption. I can't answer that question. 
But I do know this, that if you and I were in that crowd, we probably would have been mocking Jesus. If not, we would have been like the disciples scattered. And which one is even better? Ashamed, I hear my own mocking voice. Save yourself. Crucifixion was a horrible punishment. That was not enough. I'm sure the mockery, the taunting, that had to cut bitter to the heart of Christ as he looked as, as he was able, physically able, to see each and hear those voices, knowing that he created them, that their life depended on him. We now come to the crucifixion itself, the physical ailments that was happening to him. It was a horrible punishment reserved for the worst criminals and rebels. It was an agonizing death that could take hours. Jesus was on the cross, as most of us believe, six hours. It was designed to be public and shameful as the condemned were crucified and naked. Cicero, a Roman philosopher, politician, and lawyer, remarked that crucifixion was the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. Dustin shared with us this morning that a Roman citizen could not be punished by crucifixion. It was reserved for the lower class. I'd like to share with you something to get since Mark is so brief. I think it's important for you to understand, you and I to understand what happens at crucifixion. You might have heard this detail before. This is from Dr. Davis. He's a theologian and a physical uh, doctor. It says, he writes, after mocking Jesus and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and they strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport and the robe is torn from his back already having adhered to the clots of blood and the serum in the wounds. Its removal causes excruciating pain just in the careless removal of a surgical bandage. And almost though as he were being whipped again once more, as his wounds once more begin to bleed. In deference to Jewish custom, the Romans returned the garments. The heavy cross piece of the cross is tied across his shoulders. And the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves in the execution detail of the Roman soldiers, and they head with the centurions to the slow journey to Golgotha. In spite of his efforts to walk erect, the weight of the heavy wooden beam, together with the shock produced by copious blood loss, is way too much for Jesus. He stumbles and falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of his shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. The satyrian, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects a man, Simon, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating, the cold, clammy sweat of shock until the 650-yard journey from the fortress to Golgotha is finally completed. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, with a mild narcotic mixture. He refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to place the cross piece on the ground, and Jesus quickly is thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression on the front 
of his wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action. Being careful not to pull the arms too tightly so they would be as such. But to allow some flex and movement. The cross piece is then lifted at the place at the top of the stripes and the tilus that's reading Jesus, King of the Jews, is nailed into place. His left foot is now pressed backwards against the right foot. With both feet extended, toes down, a nail is now driven through the arc of each, leaving the knees moderately bent and flexed. The victim now is crucified. As he slowly stags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating pain shoots along the fingers and up and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails of the wrist are putting pressures on the median nerve in the hand. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on that nail through his feet. Again, there is a searing agony of nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. It's at this point as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles. And then with these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles there of the chest are paralyzed. And the intercostal muscles, those muscles in our chest that helps us breathe, are unable to act as created. Air can be drawn into lungs, but they cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself, order to get even one short breath. So it's a continual motion of up and down. Up and down. With only the nails as his support to push himself up and to hold himself in place. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in his lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. And spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward in order to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. We must remember that he experienced hours of this limitless pain this cycle of twisting and joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, not being able to breathe for parts of time, searing pain where tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against that heavy, rough wood. Then another agony begins with a terrible, crushing pain deep in the chest, as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress against the heart. From one remembers again the 22nd Psalm in the 14th verse where David writes, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, is melted in the midst of my bowels. Yes, the taunts, the mockery, 
did their damage. What Jesus went physically on that cross was excruciating. And not only that, during the mocking and the taunting as he's pushing himself up to get some breath and exhale and then to come back down just to rest, as he's continually doing that, every movement of pain, of burning, searing pain, he's hearing within his ears the taunts and the mockeries of the crowd. I believe this becomes the final temptation of Christ. As those who cry out, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. That echoes the call of Satan for Jesus to make stones into bread and to feed himself in his temptation in the wilderness. In other words, put your own desires ahead of anyone else. If he was having some temptation in the garden, if his heart was heavy in the garden and his heart was sorrowful in the garden, what do you think it was at that moment when he realizes this is the Father's will? This is the Father's will. And he's hearing those taunts. Save yourself. Could he? Again, here, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. That's what I came for so that they may believe. This echoes the call of Satan to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple in order that the angels will catch him. Such a sight would have caused many to see and proclaim him as the anointed one. It was a shortcut to the Father's plan. Once again, Satan is giving him one more. Here's a shortcut. Come off that cross. Save yourself. You do not have to do this. Yes, they were coming in mocks and taunts, but I wonder sometimes how did they resound in the ears and the hearts of Jesus with each gasping breath and pain that he suffered. But he stayed. He stayed. For six hours, he stayed. Let me share with you. If Jesus would have stepped down, you and I would be without hope. If Jesus would have stepped down, if he would have listened to the mocking and the taunting of the people, if he would have said, you know, this is enough, I think this is enough, I think we need to have to realize if Jesus would have stepped down, we would have lost everything. We would have lost the blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sin. There would have been no ransom for you and I and our soul. There would be no salvation from sin. There would be no theological basis for our healing in Christ. There would be no kingdom to preach. There would be no kingdom to seek after. These promises would be void and null. There would be no fulfillment of Scripture. This book would be just pages of paper. And there would be no power over death. So Jesus let the taunts soak into him. The power of the Holy Spirit continued to fight. Even as his body wore down, he continued to fight through. 
Deuteronomy says that cursed is anyone who hanged from a tree. We read in our scripture reading, Paul in Galatians puts those together with the cross. Just like the Old Testament sacrifices, Jesus, as he's hearing the taunts of those people, he says, I'm going to do it for them. This is the curse that I must bear for them. Let me share this. If you're taking notes, here's what I want you to get to this morning. Jesus' humiliation brings you and I The humiliation of Jesus brings hope to you and I. Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. I'd like to share with you, how does the crucifixion, how does the beating and the mocking and the taunting, how does all of that bring me hope? I need hope. I'm looking for hope. I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm struggling in my finances. I'm struggling in my relationships. I'm struggling with sin. How in the world does what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, how does that bring me hope? Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15, one of my favorite passages of scriptures. Paul is writing to the church of Colossae. And he's speaking of Christ. And he says, listen here, there is a problem. We see it there in verse 13. He says, you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Let me tell you, whatever problem you're having this morning, whatever struggles you are suffering through today, whatever pain that you are having to live with, whatever it may be, even that is causing you despair, none of that, and I don't want to belittle that, But whatever that may be is not as important and deadly to you as the fact that we were born in our trespasses and sins. What you're suffering through now is because that we were born in our trespasses and sin. There's a problem. But Paul goes on to write, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh, he gives a solution. He says, God has made us alive together with him. Amen? You need to underline that in your Bible as well as you find its correspondence in Ephesians. God has made us alive together with him. Christ, as he is on that cross, is making reconciliation. When he says it was by his chastisement we are healed, it is the healing and the fact that we now have peace with the almighty God power of the universe. How has God made peace? Well, he tells us by forgiving all of our trespasses as we continue on that. You see, whatever your problem is, whatever your need is, you need forgiveness of sin. Now, this is just something on the side. It it seems like now, especially with Christian and biblical-based addiction programs, we're calling things now addictions, we're calling them hang-ups, and uh, there's another word that just makes flippant use of the word sin. That's really what it is. Your addiction is to sin. We all sin. We all need recovery. We all need delivery. What you need is forgiveness of sin. For without forgiveness of sin, you and I are under the almighty hand and the wrath of God. 
But Jesus bore the wrath of God for you and I by forgiving us all of our trespasses. How has he done that? He tells us by canceling that record of debt that stood against us. Amen? Praise God. What Jesus is doing is he's crossed. He's saying, I'm canceling that record of debt. I'm canceling that record. It is gone. Jesus says it is finished. All things are in balance. When you get to heaven, there will be no debt sheet that says you owe me. God doesn't say you owe me this any longer. For we have been forgiven and that record of debt has been canceled. He said against us, not only that, but with all of its legal demands. He gives us a bill of health. He says, I now find favor with you. How has he done that? He set it aside. This he set aside by what? Nailing it to the what? Cross. Do you think that's what those Roman soldiers thought they were doing? Never in their mind. His thought was, I hope I just make it in. Let me pound this puppy in and let me get to the other one. But in each blow, our debt of sin is completely forgiven. Let me ask you, what guilt, what shame are you still holding on to? What is it that's paralyzing you from doing what God has called you to do? What is it that's keeping you from forgiving your wife or forgiving your husband? What is it that's keeping you with bitterness and resentment? God has forgiven all that. Maybe not those each and every deeds that someone has done to you, but we realize that we can, God has forgiven us. We don't have to hold on to those things. And because of that, we can forgive others. The result of this is in verse 15. Because he nailed it to the cross by canceling our debt, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he has put them to open shame. It's not Christ in open shame, but it is the rulers and the authorities by triumphing over them. So let's get to the point. What Jesus went through is horrifying. And I want to make sure that you and I never read this portion of Scripture flippantly again. When we sing songs, we should not sing those words flippantly without thinking, without considering what it means. So let me share with you this morning, and this is where it meets, because that's not just an event that happened 2,000 years ago. It has active application for you and I right now, today. Galatians 5.24 says, Because Christ is crucified, he says, Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You and I are also to be crucifying ourselves by crucifying those passions and desires that find themselves outside of God's realm. We don't have to worry about that. In Galatians chapter 5, he tells us, Here are these works. He says, These are the works of the flesh. He says, They're evident. You can see them in the lives of each other. He says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, 
rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, all these things. He says, listen to this. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the eternal life. Because Christ is crucified. We need to recognize that we must come under the cross. If we do not embrace the cross, you and I are left without hope. Romans tells us because Christ was crucified, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He says we are now alive. He says because Christ has died, we are no longer enslaved. For then he says in Romans 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as though it has been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Let me put all that in just one big ball, one little nutshell. Because of Christ's humiliation, the mockery, the taunts, the beating, the miscarriage of justice and his final agony on the cross. You and I are now enlivened and are to pursue holiness. Be holy, even as I am holy. If you're here this morning and you recognize that there is nothing that you can bring before Christ, when you recognize that there is nothing that brings you His reward, Recognize it's to make you free. Choose Christ. Follow him. Pursue holiness. Would you do so this morning? That's what God is calling us to. That's what Mark is writing. As he writes, the, Paul writes the Romans, because Christ is crucified, you are free. Father, help us to recognize that freedom. Give us a moment now just to pause, to consider. Lord, may we pray and just share with us how we're to respond to the Spirit's work. There are some here that do not know you as Savior. If so, Lord, would you show them today? Show them the power of a Christ who is crucified for us. Let us see the freedom that comes. If there's any here that is struggling with sin, let them see that they have the power to live that type of life that pleases you. Let us release ourselves of all guilt and shame that's under your blood. May the taunts of Satan and the accusers go over our heads, realizing that they have no power. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you take a moment to pause consider, to pray, and would you respond to what Christ may be calling to you this morning. May you be glorified in each and every life, in each and every decision this morning. May we carry this message with us and impress upon us the power of a crucified Christ. Let us embrace the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.